Good morning. Before we open our Bibles to our study, uh, the guys asked me to share a little bit of an announcement, update, prayer point uh, with you all. So most, most of you would know we're part of a denomination called Sovereign Grace Churches, and the mission of our denomination is to plant and strengthen local churches. Now, we probably talk more about the planting part than the strengthening part, but the strengthening part is a part of our mission as well. We want healthy churches for the glory of God. And so this last week, we had the Worship God Conference with a number of our families went down to to be equipped uh, and leading us in singing and worship of God. And then this coming week, um, right after youth camp, I'll, I'll go from camp straight on down to Louisville where I'm going to spend a few days as part of a, a leadership development retreat that they're doing where they're kind of bringing in some of us younger pastors in the movement and, and training us up and giving us some development. So I'll be doing that and I invite your prayer for that, please. And then also they invited me to stay down in Louisville over next weekend and or preach in the uh, Louisville church down there. So... I'll unfortunately be away from you all next weekend, though uh, Bert will be preaching in my place, and we're excited about that. So I'm excited about being able to go do all that. I love being a part of a denomination that wants to keep raising up new leaders and investing in them, uh, something we're passionate about here as well, and I would cover your prayers uh, for me as I'm away and for my wife as I'm away, and she has six kids. Thank you. With that, please turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, as we continue our study through this gospel. And if you're taking notes, the title of today's sermon is Dealing with Doubt. Dealing with Doubt. John Bunyan's classic book, The Pilgrim's Progress, was first published in 1678. It was immediately successful, and next to the Bible uh, is probably the best-selling book the world has ever had. Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory of the Christian life. In it, we follow a man named Christian as he makes his way from the city of destruction to the city uh, or to the celestial city. And along the way, we meet all kinds of colorful characters like worldly wise man, uh, pliable, obstinate, formalist, and talkative. We also travel to exotic locations such as Vanity Fair, Bypath Meadow, the Slough of Despond, and Delectable Mountains. And in the place we want to visit this morning, Doubting Castle. At this point in the story, Christian is traveling with his companion, Hopeful, along a road called The Way, or the King's Highway. The road is getting rough, the going is getting tough, and desiring the easier path, the two of them discover a road on the other side of a fence. Cue the ominous music. And desiring that easier way, they climb the fence, Whereupon they meet a man named Vain Confidence, who bids them follow him down the easy path. As they're going along, night eventually falls, and it becomes dangerously dark, so dark they can't see each other very well, and Vain Confidence, charging ahead, accidentally falls into a pit. Christian and Hopeful couldn't see him, but they heard his fall, they heard his terrible groanings, and then they heard an even more terrible silence. Vain confidence had died. Taking shelter for the night, Christian and Hopeful fall asleep until daybreak, or waiting for daybreak. But what the two did not know is that in climbing that fence, they had entered the territory of giant despair and his doubting castle. Giant despair, by the way, was married to a woman, a giantist, named No Faith. So giant despair happened to find Christian and Hopeful while they're sleeping, and capturing them, he brings them to his castle and locks them in a very dark and dreary dungeon. 
There they laid for days without food or drink. Giant despair would visit them and he would beat them mercilessly. He would show them the bones of all who had died in his dungeon. He told them that was their certain end and he advised them the best thing they could do was to go ahead and take their own life. The two were sorely tempted to do just that until Hopeful began to recount all the past grace they had received from God as they had walked along the king's highway. And so they decided, Bunyan tells us, to bear up with patience. Now I'm going to stop there and leave these two travelers captured in Doubting Castle and then I'll come back to uh, their end at the end of my sermon. But I want to note the point Bunyan is making here is that there is a very real and very com- common temptation for Christians to struggle with doubt. We can doubt God's existence, we can doubt God's faithfulness, we can doubt God's goodness. To varying degrees and varying frequencies, every Christian experiences moments of doubt and maybe even seasons of despair trapped in the dungeon of Doubting Castle. Every Christian struggles with doubt, and as we'll see in our passage today, this includes even the likes of John the Baptist, the greatest prophet there ever was, the second coming of Elijah himself, the forerunner to the Messiah. Even John struggled with doubt. In our passage today, we will encounter John's struggle, but we will also encounter Jesus' heart and help for those trapped in Doubting Castle. So let's look at our passage. I invite you to follow along as I read Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. This is the Word of God. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear. And see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. May the Lord bless both the preaching and the believing of his word this morning. Well, Matthew's gospel sets out to answer the essential question facing men. That question being, who is Jesus? Answering that question is the focus of Matthew's gospel. And for 10 chapters now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have seen Matthew's answer. He has presented Jesus as the Son of God, God incarnate, the King, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of Israel, and the Savior of the world. 
And to do this, Matthew has called forth witness after witness for us. Like an attorney, he's called witnesses to the stand to give their testimony regarding Jesus. And if you look at the first 10 chapters of Matthew's gospel uh, in this way, you can really see there's just a series of witnesses that he's brought before us. So in chapter one, Matthew begins with the testimony of history as we see the genealogy and, and lineage that reveals Jesus as Messiah. And then there's the testimony of the virgin birth. He was uniquely conceived by the Holy Spirit without a human father. In chapter two, there is the testimony of fulfilled prophecy In chapter 3, it's the witness of John the Baptist. And then there's the testimony of the Spirit at Jesus' baptism, who descended on him as a dove. And the testimony of God the Father, who declared over him, this is my beloved Son. In chapter 4, it's the testimony of faithfulness as Jesus overcomes Satan's temptations in the wilderness. In chapters 5, 6, and 7, it's the testimony of Jesus' own words, the Sermon on the Mount, so that... All who read it conclude at the end, never was there a man who taught with such authority. In chapters 8 and 9, it's the testimony of his works, his healings and his casting out of demons, his raising the dead, his forgiving of sins, all testify as signs to Jesus' deity. And then finally, in chapter 10, as we've been studying these last few weeks, it's the testimony of his disciples. They were so convinced that he was the Christ, they were willing to risk their life to tell others about him. So Matthew is called witness after witness to testify to who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, he is the saving one, he is the son of God, he is the son of man. And now we come into chapter 11 and in chapter 11 and 12, Matthew makes a transition. Something different is happening here. In these two chapters, he wants to show us the reaction of those who heard and saw Jesus. In these two chapters, he wants to tell us about how people reacted and what were the responses that were common in that day to Jesus and are still common today. So in the first 15 verses of chapter 11, if you want to have chapters 11 and 12 open to you, you can, you can note these. In the first 15 verses of chapter 11, our passage today, we see the response of doubt. Then in verses 16 through 19, the response of criticism. And in verses 20 through 24, the response of indifference. Then going to chapter 12, we see the first 21 verses deal with the response of opposition. In verses 22 through 37, the response of blasphemy. And in verses 38 through 45, the response of rejection. The responses I just listed are are negative, doubt, criticism, indifference, opposition, blasphemy, and rejection. They're all negative, but you might have noticed, if you were following along, I skipped two sections in these chapters. Both the last section of chapter 11 and the last section of chapter 12 give us positive responses, the response of faith. Those who come to Jesus for rest, And in the end of chapter 12, those who embrace the will of his Father. So these chapters are very helpful thinking about how people respond to Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. He is the Son of God. But people respond in all kinds of different ways to him. So that's what's happening in these these next two chapters of Matthew. And in our passage today, Matthew's dealing with the response of doubt. And I think it's important to note here at the onset of this study that whenever the New Testament talks about doubt, it's almost always focused on believers. So the Bible's saying you have to believe in something before you can doubt it. You may be thinking, well, I don't know if I really believe in Jesus. I don't really know if I'm a Christian. I have my doubts. Okay, We get what you're saying, but when the Bible talks about doubts, it's usually talking about someone who does believe, but is unsettled in their belief. Scripture is saying, some who do believe are going to struggle with doubt. Even the best of believers do, like we see in our passage today, John the Baptist does. So three points we want to consider in our passage today, in our study of this passage. The reality of doubt the reasons for doubt, and the remedies for doubt. We begin with the point number one, the reality 
of doubt. We see this in verses 1 through 6. Jesus has just sent the 12 out on their mission. And while they're away, verse 1 tells us, Jesus continued his own ministry in Galilee. But as Jesus is preaching and teaching in their cities, look again at what happens in verse 2 and 3. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So, John's in prison. He's in a physical prison, put there by Herod, but then, like Christian and hopeful, he's locked away in Doubting Castle as well, in his heart. While he's in prison, he's hearing about the works of Jesus, he's hearing what Jesus is doing. I'm sure in some sense they sounded great to him, but still something wasn't adding up for John. You see, John had come preaching judgment. You might remember back in chapter 3, verse 10, this is what he said, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. I mean, it felt like he felt like judgment was imminent. Even now, this moment, the axe is set to the root of the trees. So he said, judgment's coming. It's nigh upon thee, the King James might say. But then hearing about Jesus' ministry, he's not seeing judgment. He's not even hearing the same judgment message coming out from Jesus. And these things caused John to wonder, had he gotten it right? Was Jesus Messiah? So John sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus, point blank, verse 3, are you the one who is to come? And the English here doesn't even quite capture the, the original Greek on this point. On John's lips, this is unmistakably a title for Messiah. He's asking, are you the coming one? In the Bible, there's only one coming one. In fact, you might want to write that in your Bible. Are you the coming one? Or should we look for another? So John's confused. He's perplexed. Things are not adding up in his mind, and John is doubting. Now, we're going to look at Jesus' answer in verses 4 and 5 in just a minute. But remember, we're talking about the reality of doubt here. We're just acknowledging it's a real thing. It happens. We struggle with it. And so, on that point, I want to draw your attention to verse 6 here, because Jesus gives us a really interesting thing in verse 6. He, he, he shares a new beatitude. He says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, I think there's a gentle rebuke in this. It's very positive, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. But it's also a word of warning. That word offend in Greek is skandalizo, which you can hear we get the word scandal or scandalous from. And the word skandalizo is actually the verb form of the word uh, scandalon, which means trap or snare. More specifically, it refers to that kind of trap where you kind of, you put a you know, bait out somewhere and then you've got like a stick that's holding up a basket or a cage over it, right? And so the animal comes in to get the bait and they knock the stick and the trap springs, the trap falls on it, right? And so it's speaking about that kind of trap. The animal comes in, knocks the stick, which springs the trap, the scandal on. And Jesus is saying here, blessed are the one who is not ensnared by what I say or do. That is, blessed is the one who's not trapped by me and my ministry in some kind of cage of doubt, in some kind of doubting castle. And so we see here clearly in this, though, Jesus acknowledging the reality of doubt. That it is a real thing. People will be tempted. Christians will be tempted by. John doubted, and Jesus warns us against it. And I'll just take this as a moment to share with you some other passages in the Bible where doubt is addressed. Uh, because when you doubt, when you struggle with doubt, I want you to see this is a temptation common to man. So, what is it Jesus said over and over again to his disciples, right? Oh, you of little faith. Another way of saying you struggle with doubt. In Matthew 14, we read about the incident of Peter walking on water to Jesus. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But 
When he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? In Matthew 21, 21, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. It's conditional. If you have faith and do not doubt. Then in Matthew 28, this is amazing. At the end of this gospel, after the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples and verse 17 says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And what did Jesus reply to that? All right, all you who worship can come forward. I have to commission you. The rest of you who doubt, you're dismissed. No. Jesus commissions them all. Luke 24, 38 and 39, and he said to them, why are you troubled and why do you, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? This is after his resurrection. He says, and see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He's kindly caring for them with their doubts. Same thing in John 20 with doubting Thomas. Verse 27, Jesus says, or then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So tenderly caring for them. James 1.6 tells us, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And one of my favorite passages on doubt, Jude 1, 22, and have mercy on those who doubt. Wow, isn't that helpful to know the, the attitude, the, the heart of God towards those who struggle with doubt? Have mercy on them. So doubt is obviously something Christians struggled with in the New Testament times, and it's something they've struggled with ever since. We saw that, <clears throat> excuse me, in Bunyan's tre- treatment of it. And I'll share with you just another example from church history as well. Even the great century, our great 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon, uh, he would speak openly with his own struggles with doubt. And so here's one such quote. He says, on a, I forgot to put this on the overhead. Sorry, you just have to listen to this one. He said, on a sudden, the thought crossed my mind, which I abhorred but could not conquer, that there was no God, no Christ, no heaven, no hell, and that all my prayers were but a farce and that I might as well have whistled to the wind or spoken to the howling waves. So even strong and confident Christians like the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon himself, would face periods of doubt. So it's not surprising if you have two. Like you might as well whistle to the wind as pray to God for as good as it seems to do. Sooner or later, every thoughtful Christian will feel the unsettling and sometimes even soul-gripping claw of doubt. So, let's turn now to consider reasons for doubt. Why do we struggle with doubt? Point number two, the reasons for doubt. In our passage, I want to show you at least three reasons John seemed to doubt, at least three reasons that may have given risen to John's doubt, and then I'm going to throw on a couple extra good, or a couple extra for good measure. So, we're going to look at five reasons for doubt, and the first is this, difficulties. Difficulties. John was suffering under some pretty difficult circumstances, and difficult circumstances often cause us to doubt. So think about John, right? John is this great prophet, he's fiery, he's dramatic, He's dynamic, he's confrontive, he's courageous. His message is one of repentance. He warns of coming judgment. And when Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, had an affair with his brother's wife, John goes and calls him out, not privately, but publicly. He calls him out for being an adulterer, calls him out for an unlawful divorce of his wife. And how do you think Herod felt about that? 
He was not happy. That's correct. Understatement. But accurate. That's correct. He is not happy. Underlining the un and the unhappy part. He's not happy. So he puts John in jail. And by the time John sends his disciples to Jesus, John has been in prison for over a year. So think about this. Here is a man filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a bold prophet. This is a selfless man. He lives in the desert with nothing but camel skin and locusts to eat. He has given up much for the Lord. He was a great man. In fact, look down at verse 11 in our passage. Look again at what Jesus said of, of John. Verse 11. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So truly, John was a great man. He was a loyal prophet. And what was his reward? Imprisonment. Difficulty. And difficult circumstances often cause us to doubt. Fiery trials can make you think, God, if you are God of all comfort, and if you actually love me, then why in the world are you putting me through this? Have you ever thought that? Things don't add up in your mind. You try and be a good person. You try and do what you think God wants you to do. And what's your reward? You lose your job. Someone you love gets sick. You lose a loved one. You get rejected from the school you applied to. Or your kid grows up and doesn't believe. Moms, I I think that's one of the biggest causes for doubts for you. You try so hard to mother and love your child. And they're disruptive. They're disrespectful. They're disobedient. Maybe they're growing up and they don't believe. Doubts spring up. Maybe you doubt if God really cares for you. Maybe you doubt if God's really in control. And by the way, if you know John's story, you know it doesn't get any better for John. He ends up getting executed. So difficult circumstances can cause us to doubt. Reason number two, disappointments. Disappointments. Disappointment is a powerful thing, and it can cause us to doubt. John was clearly disappointed. He preached repentance. He preached judgment coming. But what was Jesus doing? He was eating with sinners. Not judging them. Sharing table fellowship with them. And the Jews in Jesus' days, beyond that, they expected Messiah would overturn the Romans. So, when's when's Jesus going to get to that? I mean, all he's doing is hanging out with these fishermen guys. Where's the overthrow? Where's the judgment? Where's the kingship? John began to doubt. Disappointment often causes us to doubt. Over the last number of years, we've seen a number of famous pastors commit disqualifying sins. And that can cause us to doubt. Question. Is this real? They don't seem real. Maybe this is all not real. Or maybe you've had a parent or a grandparent or a mentor take a bad turn in life. And you begin to doubt. I think we see this with young people sometimes. They they get all excited growing up and they think, I'm, I, you know, I'm sorry, this is a nice church and everything, but I'm leaving, I'm going to go join this other group and we're going to really do community. And we're going to really do worship. 
And then they do that for a year or so, and then something happens, and they switch to another church, and maybe they switch to another church, and you just see their passion wane, their ideals fall. And if you can get them to open up, they have doubts. Third reason we see here, a third reason, is ignorance. Ignorance. I think this is implied in our text. I mean, John knew the scriptures, obviously. Besides Jesus in his day, I mean, did anyone know the scriptures better? Probably not. I'd wager not. And yet still... It appears he did not understand all that there was to know about Messiah. He saw in part, he understood in part, and yet what he didn't understand raised doubts in his mind. And this is a very understandable thing. It may be the reason you struggle with doubt. You just haven't heard something taught yet. You don't know what answers there are to certain questions you have. Or maybe you think you understand, like John did, but you actually don't. So ignorance can cause us to doubt. All right, those are three reasons I think I at least see that, that why John might be struggling with doubt. Let me offer you two more kind of pastoral observations. Two more. Fourth, immorality. Immorality. Some of you suffer from doubt because you keep making immoral choices. You watch things you know you shouldn't be watching, and then you doubt God's love for you. You don't love your spouse how you know you should love your spouse. And you find yourself doubting if God could bless you. You choose to neglect daily devotions, time prayerfully in God's word, and you doubt God's presence in your life, or you doubt his leading of your life. And I want you to see here, doubts often accompanying a hardening of the heart. And then fifth and finally, very quickly, um, uh, a fifth reason is just maturation, maturity. It's very natural, even somewhat healthy. When a young person wrestles to come to grips with what they were raised to believe, and they ask themselves, do I actually believe this? So if you're a young person who grew up in the church and you find yourself you know, asking, do, you know, do I believe this maybe you're even afraid to voice that or tell your parents but but you find yourself questioning you know like do I really believe this is this really my own there's usually a season of of wondering and doubt as we mature and we need to as we see work through our doubts so there are five reasons you might doubt I'm sure there's more but I've given you five common ones let's point turn now to point number three the remedies for doubt the remedy what do we do about our doubt what does Jesus do about John's doubt I see in our passage at least three things that help remedy doubt Three things, and the first is this, uh, confront your doubt. Confront your doubt. Confront it. John had doubts, and he took them on. He did not let them plague him. He did not let them fester and infect his faith. Instead, he confronted them. And this one is obvious. It's so obvious, we might miss it. But John sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the coming one, or should we look for another? He just confronted his doubt, and so should you. In his excellent book, God in the Dark, The Assurance of Faith Beyond a Shadow of a Doubt, uh, God in the Dark is the name of the book, by Oz Guinness, uh, theologian Oz Guinness writes, if ours is an examined faith, we should be unafraid of doubt. If doubt is eventually justified, we were believing what clearly was not worth believing. But if doubt is answered, our faith grows stronger still. It knows God more certainly, and it can enjoy God more deeply. Faith is not doubt-free, but there is a genuine assurance of faith that is truly beyond a shadow of a doubt. So here Guinness calls us to confront our doubts, to examine them, because if our doubts are eventually justified, then we should just abandon what we believe. It's not worth believing anyway. But if our doubt is answered, then our faith grows stronger, and so too does our knowledge and enjoyment of God. So, examine your faith today. Do you harbor any doubts? Let them drift up in your heart. Come to the top 
of your mind. Maybe you have doubts you haven't even dared to mention to the people around you today, the family and friends that you came with. Or or maybe you even have doubts you've hardly acknowledged to yourself. God would not have you ignore them. He would have you deal with them. Listen, God is not afraid of your doubts. And to deal with them, you must acknowledge them. And more than that, you must confront them. You must take them head on. So that's remedy number one. Confront your doubt. Remedy number two, take your doubt to Jesus. Take your doubt to Jesus. That seems a little cliche sounding, um, like it'd be on a Christian bumper sticker or something like that. But let me unpack it for you, okay? This is so obvious also that we might be tempted to miss this one too. But what did John do with his doubt? He took it straight to Jesus. He opened up and put it all out there. He said, Jesus, here's what I'm struggling with. I don't know if you're the common one. I just don't know. Is it you or is it another? And I think this is helpful because we can be afraid to go to Jesus with our doubts. I mean, to really just pray to Jesus about them, to just talk to him about them. Because here's the deal. We are afraid. Here's what we're afraid of. We're afraid we'll offend him. I mean, John must have wondered, yeah, I hope Jesus, you don't take this the wrong way or anything. Cousin, by the way, you're my cousin. I hope it doesn't make family reunions awkward or anything, but are you really the one we thought you were? We can be afraid to offend. Maybe we're even afraid that he won't dispel them. What if? then my whole world would fall apart. Or my family might reject me. Or my church friends. But I want you to see how Jesus replied to John. Because it might surprise you. To begin with, he sends back a message. So now, verses 4 and 5. Look with me there, verses 4 and 5. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their, their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. So he says, go tell John what you see. It's Messiah's work. In fact, in fact, okay, you know those moments when you're studying the Bible and you're just like, oh my goodness, I've never seen this before. I had one of those this week. Okay, so I want to share this. This is so cool. This just blew my mind when I saw this earlier this week. Over in Luke chapter 7, the same incident is recorded for us. But watch this. This is so thrilling. In verse 20, Luke 7, 20, it says, And when the men had come to him, Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So basically the same as Matthew's account, right? But now, check out verses 21 and 22. In that hour, so that's the way of saying, like, at that moment, in that instant, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight, and he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. So do you see what Jesus did here? He just, he just unleashed this plethora of miracles for John's sake. To minister to John's doubts. He said, you got doubts about my messianic calling? Let me show you. Messianic power! Just everywhere. I mean, Jesus probably didn't do it like that because he's much more dignified and, and loving. But, I mean, he just unleashed this power of healing. Why? To do good for these people? Yes, and to minister to John's doubts. Oh, goodness. Friends, that's the kindness of God. Jesus was not offended by John's doubts. He goes on and immediately commends John to the crowd. Jesus says, this was a prophet, and more than a prophet, this was the prophet, the preparer of the way. In fact, he goes on, I think he uses a a side note here. I think this is one of those moments where you see Jesus' sense of humor, right? So John the Baptist, this mighty preacher and prophet, and Jesus is like, did you go out in the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind? 
And you can imagine them all going, no. <laughs> and Jesus says, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Remember, he wore camel's hair. So it's like, obviously, no. And then he makes this joke. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. That's where he was. But he's in the dungeon. And that's where he turns it. And says, what did you go out to see? Prophet. And a man more than a prophet. Look how he commends him. Truly there is not a man greater than he that has been born of a woman. So in Jesus' estimate, up until that time, there hadn't been a man greater than John, even with his doubts. There hasn't been a greater man. So Jesus had tremendous respect and affection for John. And then, and now for you who struggle with doubt, this is what I want you to see, the end of verse 11. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Dear doubting saint, that's you. That's you. You are greater than even John in Jesus' estimate. Even with your doubts. Why? Because of anything you had done? No. But because of the grace of God, you have been made a partaker in the new covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, he has died for your doubt. So there's no condemnation for them now. You can come freely to God with your doubts to deal with them. In fact, Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 is for you. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, bring your doubts to Jesus. He is your sympathetic high priest. He understands your weaknesses. Bring your doubt to his throne of grace. Jesus wants to help you. He wants to give you fresh mercy. He wants to give you grace to help in your time of need. Remember Jude 1.22. The will in the heart of God through you is have mercy on those who doubt. So go to Jesus. He wants to help you. And then third and finally, third and finally, what do you do with your doubts? How do you remedy them? Well, you submit your doubts to Scripture. Submit your doubt to Scripture. We see this remedy of doubt in the way Jesus replied to John. Uh, in verses 4 and 5. But what he says, Jesus teaches John that his ministry is actually in line with the prophetic promises about the time of salvation. Uh, He's quoting, in verses 4 and 5, he's just quoting Isaiah's prophecy. The blind receive sight, Isaiah 35, 5. The blind... I'm sorry, the lepers are cured, Isaiah 53, 4. The death here, Isaiah 35, 5. The, uh, The dead are raised, Isaiah 26, 18. And the good news is preached to the poor, Isaiah 61, 1. So Jesus took John to the one place where he could find answers to his doubt, Holy Scripture, and unpacked it for him. So many of our doubts, here's the the thing, so many of our doubts can actually be answered in Scripture if we will dig in and study the Word of God. So many of our doubts can be answered in Scripture. We just don't realize how deep the teachings of Scriptures go. So we need to dig in and often we need help. We need pastors or community group leaders or good friends or spouses or books to come alongside and help us to understand and to study the scriptures and see what the Bible has really got to say. Now that doesn't guarantee a question or an answer to every question we might have because there are still secret things that belong to God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So, there are still secret things that belong to God. Great mysteries that are too mind-boggling for our little pea-sized brains to understand, right? Things like the Trinity. How can God exist in three persons? Answer? I don't know. Okay, Jace, well, how do you reconcile, at the end of the day, ultimately, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility? I don't know. And you call yourself a preacher of God's word. 
Yes, I do. Because the secret things belong to God. Just explain to me the incarnation. Well, God became man. How is that possible? I don't know. But I believe it. You see, Scripture can answer so many of our doubts. But where it can't, not where it won't, it leads us to the promises that strengthen our faith. Because at the end of the day, it still is by faith. Everything we do need for life and godliness, God has given us in the knowledge of His Son and through the precious Scriptures. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. So take your doubts to the Scriptures. Test them against the Bible. And where faith is called for, cling to the promises of God. All right, in conclusion, let's return to Christian and Hopeful, who we left sitting in the dungeon of Doubting Castle, guarded by giant despair. We need to get them out of there. And so let me simply read to you what Bunyan wrote to close this part of the story. Now, a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, broke out in passionate speech. What a fool am I! Thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk out at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that's good news. (laughs) Good brother, pluck it out of thy bosom and try. I love Hopeful's response. Well, that's good news. Would have been good for you to remember that a few days ago before we got beat by the giant, but it's good now. Let's try it. Then Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave back, and the door flew open with ease, and Christian and Hopeful both came out. Then he went to the outward door that leads to the castle yard, and with his key opened that door also. After After that, he went to the iron gate, for that must be opened too. But that lock went very hard. In fact, um, I believe here Bunyan originally wrote that that lock went very damned to show how hard he had to turn that key against doubt. Yet the key did open it. Then they thrust open the gate to make their escape with speed. But that gate, as it opened, made such a creaking that it walked or waked giant despair, who hastily rising to pursue his prisoners, felt his limbs to fail. A fit took him again so that he could by no means go after them. And then they went on and came to the king's highway again and so were safe because they were out of his jurisdiction. Christians realize, or Christian realized, that he had in his possession the means of escape from doubt all along. He had a key that would open any lock in Doubting Castle. That key represented the exceedingly great and precious promises of the gospel, promises that are ours in Jesus Christ. So, dear Christian, Jesus would not have you captured in Doubting Castle. Rather, he would have you confront your doubts, bring them boldly to him for help, and with his scriptures, unlock your key and set you free. So be free. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word which comes alongside us in moments of weakness and moments and seasons of discouragement and is a mighty help to us. Pray that you would give us the grace to live by this word. And I pray for some here today who I believe have heard this word. Jesus said, give them ears to hear. I believe there are some who have truly heard this word today and they do not believe it. They have hardened their heart towards it.
Jesus would say to you, I stand at the door and knock. Will you open and have fellowship with Jesus? It's not Jesus that holds back. It's you. It's us. So, wake up, oh you sleeper. Gird your loins. Pick them up for action. Open the door. And meet with Jesus. He would not have you locked in Doubting Castle. Jesus came to set the prisoners free. Hallelujah. Do it, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to transition to taking the Lord's Supper. Before we do, I want to remind you that the teachings in 1 Corinthians is that we would not come to this table unexamined. We should not come lightly to taking the Lord's Supper, but we should examine ourselves and where there need be repentance. We should come humbly to this table, repenting of our sin, but finding assurance of forgiveness. So as we prepare for taking the Lord's Supper this morning, I invite you as well to examine yourself under the word preached, to examine yourself under the revelation that has been given to you through the word and by God's spirit, that we come to this table humbly confessing our sins in need of a Savior, that we might be reassured we have a Savior. He is Jesus Christ. So, all of you, whether you call this church your home or not, if you are a Christian, you are welcome to join us at this meal. It is a table laid by Jesus Christ for his followers. Uh, however, if you are not a Christian, if you uh, have not confessed Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, we would ask that you'd refrain from participating. And if you are a child who grew up in this church or grew up going to church but have not publicly confessed your faith and have not been baptized, we'd also ask that you would refrain. Um, but understand and asking all to refrain who do not know Jesus. Uh, We do that only because we want to urge you to make a decision towards Jesus, uh, to believe in Him as the Lord and Savior, to receive salvation, and we would be eager to join you at this table, join with you at this table soon. Let me ask you to stand now. If you need the elements there in the back, you can get them while we sing this next song, and I'll come back up and lead us in taking the Lord's Supper.